Welcome to the Nuco Shift Dialogues podcast. For the first season, we've selected some of the best conversations we've had throughout the year to share with you, our first listeners. These conversations were originally recorded at the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center as part of our Dialogues project, where we chat with leaders on the front lines of the greatest shift in business since the Industrial Revolution. The first season of our podcast is brought to you by EY, Building a Better Working World. In a conversation with Brad Smith, President and Chief Legal Officer at Microsoft, Smith discusses Microsoft's renewed mission, the cultural shift happening across the company, and the role of the corporation in society. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. So let's start with, in Satya's newly reorganized Microsoft, you were given the role of President. Um, what is different about that role? It really means two things. It means that I now play a broader role in representing the company externally, speaking at times uh, for Microsoft. And second, I have the opportunity inside the company to drive uh, a number of important initiatives around privacy, aspects of security, environmental sustainability, accessibility, digital inclusion, where I'm really working with other senior folks uh, to bring us together, I hope, and accomplish more. Recently, um, Microsoft has uh, declared a new mission. Um, can you tell me what it is and kind of what it means to the company? Sure. I actually think that Microsoft, perhaps more so than at any time in the last 15 or so years, is more mission-driven than we have ever been. The mission statement is succinct. It is to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. Has Satya really created a new culture at Microsoft? Well, I think Satya is creating a new culture. Right. I don't think that one can say that, you know, two years and X months, right. you know, the, 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 you know, a company of 100,000 people has been remade and the job is done. Right. I do think it is a much more outward looking culture. It is a more collaborative culture internally. It is a more mission focused culture. I think it's a more humble culture. So how has the mission actually informed decisions that are taken at the company? Are there, uh, can you give an example of a decision that you took where it's like, well, no, we can't do that because that's not on mission. That's not helping people realize their potential. That's just maybe helping a shareholder mm -hmm. get richer. I mean, there's definitely days when we're talking about what we're trying to accomplish from a technology perspective or even from a policy perspective. And it very much informs the need to think globally. But other times, I think what we find is it, it serves us best to sort of start with the mission and translate this into a set of principles that we're going to apply in a, in a discrete area, whether it's environmental sustainability or privacy or security and the like. Mm -hmm. And then what we find is with those principles, we're able to use those to keep making more and more concrete and specific decisions. Right. Uh, so you... Uh filed a lawsuit against the Department of Justice mm -hmm. on a very specific issue recently. Um, and it made a lot of news. It resonated because there's so much going on in this space. So can you tell us what you sued the government for and yes. why? Yeah, we specifically brought a lawsuit challenging the government's gag or secrecy or non-disclosure orders that often accompany warrants, warrants seeking email, for example. And what we found when we really studied the warrants that we were receiving from the U.S. government uh, was that a very high percentage of them not only had these non-disclosure orders, but they had orders that were very long or had no end date. And we found that these really conflicted with the principles that we said we would stand up for on behalf of our customers. Uh, especially a principle around transparency. Uh, that's one of the four principles we articulated. And you know, what we concluded is that you know, people 
are not in a position to know in a way that we think would be appropriate uh, when the government is accessing their email. We understand that secrecy, in fact, is appropriate in some circumstances, but we ended up concluding that this had become too widespread and this kind of secrecy had become too routine. You were very involved in the antitrust suit that the Department of Justice brought against Microsoft. That was a dark time, yeah. I imagine, for, uh, for many of you at Microsoft. Um, what does it feel like to be on the other side of the table suing the Department of Justice? Well, it, it, uh, it's obviously very different. I, the first thing I would say is one never brings a lawsuit against any government uh, without thinking it through very carefully. This yeah. is actually the fourth lawsuit we've brought in the last three years right. around these privacy and security issues. So if we could pull back from the specifics of, of that case about the U.S. government and you know, uh, searches that are not being disclosed to a broader sort of you know, take on data privacy and particularly between countries. The Snowden revelations of a few years ago clearly spooked a lot of non-U.S. governments yeah. to the point where uh, in Europe, for example, um, the safe harbor of data between Europe and the United States, that agreement broke down. Yes. Um, how has the Snowden revelations changed your business? Well, I think that those revelations told the world things the world didn't know. Uh, it really undermined and to some degree in some places even sort of shattered trust in technology. Right. And so I think as a tech sector, we've been spending the last three years working to rebuild that trust. If you could wave a magic wand and say, this is how it will be, some large tech companies that I've had private conversations and even in public statements have said, there should be one set of rules um, that everyone understands and knows around the world. Ideally, it would be ours, <laughs> our set of rules. Um, and, and that's that, and let's get that done. Um, but I think you have a bit of a different take. Well, I actually think it would be a wonderful world if there were one set of rules. The problem is in the last phrase, because everybody is then prone to say, and it should be my rules. Right. It's a big world. It's a diverse world. It is unrealistic to expect any part of the world to accept 100% of any other part of the world and its rules. Now, over the next three to five decades, we may construct a world where there is a global set of norms. Until then, yeah, we're going to have to, in effect, construct a new legal order. And you have to do it sort of step by step. Uh, I think step one is persuading governments that they shouldn't try to apply their rules to everybody else mm -hmm. around the world. Step two is actually starting to create on a bilateral basis some common rules. And then step three is once you have that model, you can begin to adapt it and, and extend it to other countries that you think should join in. Right. But we're still in steps one and two, and the notion of uh, people thinking, oh, we can blow past all of that, ignore it, and just everybody do what I want, that's just not the way the world actually works. Right. These are relatively difficult concepts of, of law, yeah. because we're talking about, for example, you could have a customer in one country, uh, his or her data could be stored in a second country, and the company, Microsoft, could be headquartered in a third country, yeah. right? So where should the rule of law apply? In all three cases, or are you arguing for a 
set of law and regulation that's agreed to by all three countries that sort of lives above all of them? Well, ultimately, I think the goal is to get sort of an international system in place that sits above all this that mm -hmm. people are comfortable with. If you want to provide a service to the people of Spain, the Spanish government believes that Spanish law should protect Spanish citizens. Um, and so the, the challenge from a tech perspective is, you know, there's a lot of countries, there's a lot of laws, this is very complex, it's difficult work, especially for a smaller company. Yeah. But what happens when you have customers um, or you want to go after customers in a country that doesn't share the same set of principles? How do you do business uh, in a situation like that? Uh, you know, so there are certain countries where we don't offer certain consumer uh, services. Right. Uh, and so we make those decisions. Uh, you know, we strive to do it in a thoughtful way. Similarly, before we put a data center in any country, um, we do a very detailed analysis, including a human rights analysis. Uh, and we make decisions based on that in some cases that we won't put a data center somewhere because right. we're just not comfortable with what that will mean. Right, right. One of the things that I found really interesting in researching uh, this conversation was that Microsoft has uh, 6,000 open positions, mm -hmm. of which almost 3,500 or more are engineers. So, you know, in an, in an in a era where, you know, a lot of people are complaining about the lack of high-quality jobs, here are 6,000 high-quality jobs that you can't fill, or right. you're filling probably less rapidly than you would like. Exactly. Um, again, in your role sort of as both external communicator and um, sort of chief policy wonk, yeah. what do we need to do to make it so that our economy provides the people who could fill these jobs? Well, we have a significant skills mismatch right now. This is true in the United States and in many other parts of the world. And I think it's clear that we're going to need to do at least two things. Um, first, we need to focus on skilling uh, the younger generation, but to some degree multiple generations, uh, you know, in the capabilities that are needed to fill the jobs the economy is creating. That means coding, it means computational thinking. You know, so we're definitely out there advocating, as are many in our industry, uh, you know, the need for states to you know, put computer science in schools, the need for the federal government to provide money to train teachers to teach these courses. Is it, are you getting pushback? It seems like a pretty obvious, I mean, you ran a letter with lots of people yeah. signing up to it. I signed up to it as yeah. well. It seems like a completely no-brainer idea to incorporate computer and, and coding literacy into uh, the farthest reaches of our K-12 system. Are people saying that's a bad idea? Well, it's interesting. The American public gets this. I mean, polls are showing that over 90% of American parents want their kids to have access to these kinds of skills in school. Uh, what I find in talking with people in Congress, I've met the, you know, so far this year with 37 members of the Senate on this issue, uh, is that people embrace the cause, um, but they have questions about, you know, what's the right role for the federal government? There's a debate across the country about the role of the federal government in education. Mm -hmm. We do think a federal role in financing some of this, but in a way that, you know, delegates authority to the states and local school districts makes sense. Uh, you have a debate, as always, over the budget. You know, mm -hmm. there's a, a lot of competing needs for money. And what we're having to do is, is make the case that this is worthy of a significant federal investment. We're right. asking for $250 million this year. Yeah. When you think about how the outside world perceives Microsoft, what annoys you? Well, <laughs> you know, if there's one thing I've learned 
um, you know, being in this industry and at this company for, for 23 years, you know, the, look, you, could, you should only get annoyed with yourself. Uh, yeah, I like to say nobody ever died of humility. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think as an industry, uh, you know, we can sometimes live in our own bubble. Um, we need to do a better job every day uh, you know, of understanding how the world as a whole, with all of its diversity, is thinking about what we're doing today. And where the world doesn't think we're doing enough, we need to ask ourselves why. Mm -hmm. I think the first instinct of people in the industry is often to answer that question by saying, well, they just don't know us well enough. They don't really understand us. If they knew everything we knew, they would love us. Right. I'm not convinced of that. Yeah. I think oftentimes it means that we have some more to learn. Um, you know, as an industry, we're affecting so many people in so many different ways. And look, if we work hard to just sort of think about how other people are perceiving us, in all probability it's gonna serve us well. So I, I really don't get annoyed with the criticisms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get frustrated that we're not moving as fast as we might to address them. Well, Brad, thank you very much for coming and being here on Nuco Shift Dialogues. Well, thank you. Right. Great to be here. The Nuco Shift Dialogues are produced in partnership with the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center, connecting entrepreneurs from all walks of life. Thanks to our sponsor, EY, for their support of our first season of the Shift Dialogue podcast. EY, building a better working world.